Hi everyone, Brett McKay from the Raw Rugby Podcast here and Harry Jones and I will be back once again next week to review the first round of Super Rugby Pacific as well as looking ahead to the second annual Super Round in Melbourne with a very special guest. Until then, the Raw's rugby editor Christy Doran has completed his series of pre-season chats working his way around the Australian Super Rugby Pacific franchises for a conversation with their respective head coaches. If you've not checked them out already, make sure you go back and find the great conversations with Kevin Foote, Darren Coleman, Stephen Larkham and Brad Thorne, with the aim of these chats being to bring us closer to the Super Rugby teams and gain a unique insight into who these coaches are. You'll get all that again in this final chat of the series, and we hope you've obviously enjoyed them all as we've edged closer to the start of Super Rugby Pacific in 2023. So with thanks to the raw.com.au, Australia's biggest sporting debate, here's Christy Doran with the final edition of his pre-season chats with new Western Force head coach, Simon Cron. Rugby on the Raw. Hello and welcome back to the Raw Rugby Podcast, our final special edition with our Australian Super Rugby coaches. The next man that joins me, the last off the bat, Simon Cron. Your first year as a Super Rugby head coach must be excited. Yeah, no, it's exciting. It's um, you know, it's a great bunch of boys, and, and it's a great opportunity for us. So yeah, no, we're excited. It's 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 a week out from the Super Rugby competition getting underway. You've been in the role, you've been known that you're coming into the Western Force head coaching role for the last eight months or so. What's it been like? What's been the most challenging aspect of coming in and, and not actually getting your hands in coaching immediately but having quite a long build-up? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, being in Japan and, and um, obviously signing and being announced early, um, that gave me some understanding of who was who was still signed for, for that year. And, and I, you know, I signed and I think it was April of 2022. So um, relatively late in terms of the cycle of things. So just understanding who's, who we've got and, you know, what areas we need to get and then really looking at the program and, and working out, you know, where we sit, what we need to do and what we need to change to be better really was, was, was a major focus. Was there a fair bit that you had to do? Um, oh, look, there's always great things at any club and there's always good things at clubs and then there's always things that you need to make better. Um, so we had a number of those that we looked at early on and we addressed and and, and um, one of them was just trying to get the best people around the team who can make them the best players they've ever been. So that was a big focus for us too. We'll get to the here and the now shortly, but let's go back in time a little bit. You're back in Australia you kind of consider yourself an Australian these days, but it was, what, about a decade ago that you moved over to Sydney and you go through the pathways, you leave northern suburbs to a drought-breaking victory in the Shoot Shield, Australian under 20 shortly after, and then you're at the Waratahs. Can you believe that, you know, looking forward now, that you're actually with the Western Force when once upon a time the dream might have actually been with the New South Wales Waratahs? Yeah, look, it's an interesting. I think everybody takes a different pathway. And um, I came to Australia in 2006. Um, and, you know, sometimes they ask, are you Kiwi, are you Australian? And I, I often debate, I think I'm a bit of a hybrid, you know, and I think um, all my coaching has been done in Australia. So all my coaching development. But in saying that, in New Zealand, I got to go through rugby and and also do a number of you know younger coaching teams as I was, as I was playing. So I think you you evolve over time. And, and hitting Sydney in two thousand six, um, 
was a big change. And I think you've got to go from a place of where you're really comfortable to an uncomfortable environment to evolve. And that was kind of the theory around moving to Sydney. My wife is obviously keen to go there. Um, <laughs> my now wife. Uh, so um, going through those pathways was, was was for me, like I loved it, still connected to it. Um, obviously, northern suburbs, um, Aussie 20s, uh, you know, some great boys there that, that we're still linked to. Uh, NRC, Sydney Rays. You know, people sometimes forget the NRC. Oh, I loved that process in, in 2016. Um, and then, obviously, Waratahs as assistant. And, um, again, really enjoyed that. Uh, in terms of your pathway and your journey, you know, probably you wouldn't – I wouldn't have sat there and said, I'm going to go to Japan. That was never in the pathway, never in the planning. But uh, opportunities present themselves, and sometimes you've got to check your ego at the door and go, you know what – Will I be better having gone over there? Will I be better as a coach um, working with the people I've got there? And will I evolve and, and have more longevity um, if I do that? So that, that was part of it. It's really curious when you when you think about how people get to that journey and that path in Japan and now the force. But at the Waratahs, you, you wanted that gig, that head coaching role, and it didn't present itself. And Australia has a a habit of at times losing coaches or players IP and you go, how does that person slip through the cracks? How difficult was it for you to go, no, I'm actually going to leave Sydney and I'm going to go to Japan, a a place that you probably don't know too well when when you've got a young family and you've been enjoying yourself down at Mm. Fairlight B. I dare dare say it must have been a a tough decision. It it was really tough and I'm, uh, you know, people will tell you sometimes with with my, I'm good at making decisions for other people pretty quickly but for myself it takes a lot of time and you never know if you're right or wrong and did I want the job at the Waratahs? Yeah, 100%. Was it my team uh, at the time? I was an assistant coach. It's not my team. It's Gibbo's team and um, I was never uh, negative about um, the fact that Gibbo was going to stay on. You know, that was his choice and I understood that. I just decided at that point of time as an assistant coach for a third year probably wouldn't have been uh, great in terms of the development. It still took me f- six months, I think, from the phone call in Japan to making the decision. In fact, I probably didn't make many friends in Japan. I took so long. But to be honest, that one of the deciding factors around that decision was a meeting in Sydney Airport very late in the piece, um, obviously having a phone call from Steve uh, around this is what I want to do and this is how I want to do it was a big part of it and, and therefore I, I wouldn't have paid attention to it if it hadn't been for that phone call. Um, and then meeting him at Sydney Airport, you talk about planning and preparation, Steve gets out a big bit of paper and he just goes, right, this is you as a head coach, this is how I see you developing, you are a head coach, this is why. And he'd done, he just... He, he did it all his homework. He knew more about me than probably at the time, to be fair, apart from the coaching staff at the Waratahs, more than the Waratahs themselves did around how I'd coach and what, and what I do and how he saw me. This is why I think you should come to Japan. So um, after that meeting, you, you really do weigh it up and go, this guy is next level in terms of his homework and understanding. So, um, And it came down to two decisions. One was Steve. And then the second one was family. I thought, you know what, they're young. Maybe we reverse what people do and we go there early while they're young and and and, and then come back, um, which was always the plan. Certainly a trend with the, the playing cohort of, of today's generation. 
Steve Steve Hansen is probably the sort of person that you can't ever say no to either. He is a hard man to say no to. There's no doubt about that. And and the reason he's hard to say no to is because he's smart and he knows what makes people tick and he knows that he can't go into a meeting with you half-assed. He's Mm. planned, prepared, organised. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Was there another fact that your uncle, Mike, um, had coached alongside him for a long, long time? And and I'm curious too because Steve was a – assistant for a long long while and you, you think about the all blacks and you go how did that coaching structure really even work because they had a bunch of head coaches alongside uh, graham henry there. and often coaches who are head coaches don't always like becoming assistant coaches because it goes against what they've done for a long long time well i think you know they are a unique group mm-hmm. and they have a few policies around them as a coaching staff and how they functioned and it and therefore Every every one of them added to the environment, which I think is assistant coach you've got to. Look at the Waratahs. I love being an assistant and, and my job. I knew what I had to do. So I think if you embrace your role in the coaching team, because it is a team, uh, it can be really effective. The mistake is if you don't embrace your role and know what your, your, what your job is for that team, then it'll get messy. And I think Steve knew and Mike knew. And, um, Mike and uh, so, so Mike was anti me going to Japan. So he was the opposite. Was that? Uh, he was like, no, stay. Stay in some rugby. Japan will be there. Don't go. He goes, you, you, you know, he, he likes he likes me coaching over in Australia and he, he says you've done all your work over there without being back in New Zealand. And, and he um, is a great mentor. Now, the, and the only reason probably I balked a little bit around his mindset was purely because I was like, you know what, I've, it'll give me, uh, some different development opportunities. And ideally, because I burned the candle, which, which I do, <laughs> I burned the candle, I was also looking for answers to longevity because I, I, I could be that coach probably that burns pretty quick uh, individually. So therefore, you know, and, and, and learning to try and balance family and life and outside of rugby and be present when I'm with family is still a work on. So one of the things I thought I need to be better at was that area. So, and that was an area that was a big work on for me while I was in Japan to a degree. Did I master it? No, opposite probably, but uh, I learned a lot. What was it like going to Japan, a completely different environment? Way different. Yeah. Um, I walked in on probably uh, what what you would call was a dysfunctional environment for no other reason apart from the fact that a Kiwi player had taken cocaine prior to my arrival and blown the program apart. Um, it's very different to Australia and it's very different to New Zealand and other programs. If one player makes a mistake, the, they own it and the rest of the team can move forward. Uh, not in Japan. It's shame. Massive amount of shame for the company and we, are the, we were the ninth biggest company in the world. Um, team ownership. So you're guilty, no matter, even if it, you had nothing to do with it. So they were getting punished and I, and I landed and they didn't really give me the insight until I got there because they were a bit ashamed. Uh, and I, I got there and they said, you can only train one player at a time. So I've got 45 players that you're allowed to see one at a time. They're not allowed to see each other. They have to stay at work. They're working from five until seven at night. You're not allowed to train them. So I was like, holy how long does this last for? And, and It was indefinite. So it was an indefinite message to me. Um, and 
I started doing skills training two weeks later at 7.30 at night and then someone saw it and they panicked, you know. So we turned it into an impromptu training where I couldn't invite anybody, but if they showed up, they showed up. But I also had a lot of boys going to the factories at five in the morning, cleaning them out of shame and, and not coming until nine. So uh, it was a challenge and I had to be the balance between foreign player, Japanese player, company and team. So um, the idea of maybe having a little bit more work-life balance went out the door after I landed. It's a pretty remarkable place that you're walking into in that kind of situation because you're, you're interacting with not only professional players, but in Japan there's a lot of amateur players that make up the bulk of the squads. It was, is that the case at Toyota as well? Yeah, what you do is you inherit what the last coach did in terms of squad planning for, for Japanese players, and I inherited... Um, a large number of props, 18 of them, I think, of which maybe five of them were props and the rest were loose forwards. So a squad list was unbalanced. Um, I obviously got to be involved in, with Steve in the foreign player recruitment, um, and that's the major impact you have. So the guys I recruited into the Japanese program don't arrive until three years later because you hit them second year of university. So, um, yeah, it, it's a different environment. And you, you're coaching the best in the world. And you're also coaching guys that need a lot of help. And sometimes it's you've got a job. You've got to be keep the best in the world progressing and you've got to also be able to get the other guys up to a standard that doesn't impact your training. And speaking of the best of the world, Kieran Reid, Michael Hooper arrives about a year later. Yep. What was it like working with those guys? Uh, awesome. Uh, obviously, Rito is uh, – Rito and Hoops are both next level, you know, uh, both different. Different leaders, different people, great humans. Rito was was signed from a first year and, and um, loved working with him. And uh, then I had Vili also come in that year, who's different based again, South African and a, a good fella. Um, and then Hoops's agent called and was keen for Hoops to come and join. And I was like, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll try and make that happen. So... Um, it was awesome having him over there too, you know, and it was a great because we had Aussies, New Zealanders and, and Kiwis as well as a massive Japanese contingent because the foreigners only make up 12 of your of your 50, you know. Um, so great for me. And and then having Peter Steph to talk, join in my last year as well. Uh, again, a different, a different body, different human, two metres tall, runs like a seven. Um so, yeah, it was definitely different. And then you've got to balance who plays because you can't play them all. You can only play the changes every year, but now you're down to four foreigners. So um, you could only have two caps on when Hoops and Rito were there. So if you had Philly on, you could only have one or the other. And that's different for those. And then as well, they've, they've got to come off a bench or change around. Or So it was good at, uh, in terms of adaptation, mindset, skill set for them. And how did you find working with um, Kieran Reid, who's just internationally retired coming from a rugby world cup was that a did you see a, a kieran reed that was still wanting to learn to get better or to pass off what what kind of kieran reed did you come across both always wanted to get better and happy to engage and pass off I, you know initially um when i said who's coming over you know there's always they compete right they actually don't know each other that well apart from in a shed post game and that's not a, a like a teammate relationship. So one of the conversations I had with Rito is this is a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity mm. because Rito was still playing brilliant rugby, 
but it's an opportunity to to um, pass on knowledge to another guy who's a captain of an international team and and help um, in that evolution and and for Rito to learn off hoops. So yeah, we create a lot of opportunities for that to happen, and um, yeah, Rito's next level of high performance in terms of mindset. So we used him a bit in the team, and and then obviously hoops and. And um, in that last year, Patrick Tuvalotu came in too. So, you know, you got guys that can add to the team. And the key thing for me, and like I said to the Japanese boys, is we've got to strip them of all their knowledge so that you boys can grow and get better. That's the purpose of us having them here too. So we would often interview them in front of the team and, and ask questions that I knew I wanted answers for so that our guys could evolve. And that was important. We see the um, relationship between head coaches and directors of rugby pretty different across all the walks of rugby, but in Japan as well. Michael Cheku has just left his posting at the at the Green Rockets, but there's other guys like Robbie Daines who's heavily involved in Panasonic. Um, what was the working relationship like with you and Steve? Was it one that he was on the ground every now and again or you're constantly communicating? Um, yeah, Steve made it crystal clear because it was part of the deal with me going over is I was head coach. So Steve didn't want to coach anymore. He, he said, I've, I've done my coaching. Um, I want to mentor a coach. And and and, um, and that was humbling because that is humbling so that, that he was keen to mentor me through that time. So as director of rugby, um, his involvement really was was high end around some of the management stuff. Uh, you know what he sees in the team. He was over intermittently, but him and I would talk a lot and just yarn. Um, the first two years because of COVID, that massively impacted his ability to be on the ground. Hmm. Um, you can't come in and out of Japan; it got pretty locked down. So um, uh, him and I would communicate the most, obviously, and then. We would bounce things through the team depending on what needed to happen. But I probably had to take a little bit of a director rugby role on the ground um, because of the COVID inability for Steve to come in. So um, I had to work heavily with the Japanese management around our structures and, and who we were and, and then balancing that against a company who, you know, they were fighting COVID as well in the company and Toyota are a massive company. They don't want COVID in their factories to, create, um, to prevent uh, production. And therefore, they would sometimes treat us like we were part of that company, which obviously we are. But uh, and therefore, that could be a limiting factor to high performance. So we, you know, we had a lot of robust discussions. But I was lucky enough to have a good group there that listened, and we were able to get through it. And then Steve would jump in when the when I'd lit too many fires. Steve would jump in and light a couple more and put one out. So we we had a great uh, combination going. What was COVID like for you? Because it I don't think your family was there all the time. It would have been challenging knowing how tight the border situation was. Yeah, no, it was tough. When it first hit, um, I stayed. To, I was last man off the off the ship at, at, because I have to be. The foreign coaches had all gone home and players, and I was staying in case we launched again. And we didn't that first year, so that we went back. Um, but then uh, Amy and, and the kids decided oh, look, we haven't seen our grand because we've been living in Sydney. We didn't have a house in Sydney. So her parents are in Christchurch and so are mine. So I said, look, the schools are closing down here. Go to Christchurch because the kids haven't seen the grandparents. Spend the monthly and then come back. By that time, we should be sweet. And so they went to Christchurch and then it all locked down. So they couldn't come back. Uh, so we had nine months apart. And to be fair, it probably 
I then ended up doing 15 hour days anyway, just because we that's where we were as a team. We needed to change some structure stuff. Uh, and it got quite busy around that COVID time. So COVID was like putting uh, what I would call Japanese culture on 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 uh yeah, a thousand percent because as a company, Toyota are very uh, traditional and in a, in a great way, but um, there's a lot of restrictions. So we weren't allowed to catch COVID. So initially, that, mm. was the, that was the rule. You can't catch, you're not allowed to catch COVID. So I had to explain that it's a worldwide pandemic and we might run into it. So Hoops' first message, he hops off the plane and we'd caught COVID. So I blame Rito, but he blames me. But anyway, uh, the, he tested positive first. Uh, and we had 16 cases, and this is in 2020, right? Um, and my first discussion with the head of medical, the head of medical told me, I said, look, he's probably just caught it in the 7-Eleven or the supermarket, and the head of medical told me you can't actually catch it there. And I said, so why would that be? And he said, because it's too clean. And I was like, <laughs> well, maybe we should train in the supermarket. <laughs> So, well, this is what you run into, some very unusual mindset. So, and then a message went out on WhatsApp. And so, so Hoops lands as we go into isolation as a team. And the message goes out saying, you're not allowed to catch COVID again, or the team might be defunct. And Hoops messages me, <laughs> do they realise that this is a worldwide pandemic? And I said, I'm not quite sure they do. I said, uh, just ignore that message and I will, sort that out as we go um so you there's a lot of balancing uh, and you can imagine a foreigner getting that message thinking what the hell uh so you know um keeps you on your toes keeps you on your toes but it, it's um it was a great time and a great learning and uh I, I had to spend a lot of plates for a long for quite a long period of time from a personal perspective appreciate the fact you're working 15 hour days which seems ridiculous yeah, but only some days 12 most it, it would have been, and I've spoken to a number of the coaches and there's a bit of a theme that you do end up spending a lot of time away from your family, but when you're away from your, your, your family for nine months, uh, it can't be easy from a personal perspective. Not at all, not at all. And, um, you know, it's stupid to be having to do that many hours, but um, a lot of my time was taken up in meetings to try and um, preempt any negative um Decision making, so the, so the wrong decision for the team versus team. The players didn't have to do those. No, mm. Players are in. We train them like pros, like Super Rugby, and they're out again. Um, but for the family, it was tough. Like I, I went over there with the idea that we would have more family time, and that, that the reverse happened. Um, I went over there with uh, working with Steve, and he got stuck in New Zealand. So um, things didn't work out as planned. And the hardest part there is, you know, I had a nine, a six, and a three-year-old in Christchurch. So, and I can tell you now, a three and a six-year-old don't really want to talk to you on a phone, on a on a FaceTime. So, luckily, my nine-year-old um, did, so mm. she was good. <laughs> but the others are grown up, as you speak, and and um, and you know, you sometimes sit there thinking, you can't, you don't feel sorry for yourself, but because everyone's going through something, but you definitely get a bit angry about the circumstance and you know but um it, yeah i wouldn't do it again and and there's, there's a reason we're probably not in japan again now for the for the family you end up 
joining the Western Force and you eventually arrived, you've brought your family across to Perth. I imagine that's a great experience in itself. The Western Force had lots of coaches, lots of captains, lots of players come in. Have they cracked it? Probably not. What gives you confidence that you're the right man to take the Western Force forward? Uh, look, I don't think it's a one-man lottery. And am I the right man? I think we're the right team uh, around the, the, the team. So um, if there's one man given a message and he's on an iceberg, you're stuck, right? And you get two players driving a message, you're stuck too. I think what's the best thing at the moment for us is we have a pretty um, great united group around the team. There's no soft ears, there's no seams. Um, all of a high-performance mindset. All people who can coach and deliver, and that goes through from medical to S&C to coaching staff to management. Um, we have a lot of meetings. to. We're on the same page, the same messages, the same stuff. So the boys are surrounded by constant messaging. And then we're in the player group, we've got people of all different ages and categories that are from the guys who are young and developing, like, you know, some of the young bucks, through to some players that are a bit older that still want to be the best I've ever been. Um, so for us, it's understanding what great looks like and driving towards that every day. Um, and, and that's how we, we've got to change perception of us and, and perception's reality. Um, what we look like in the rugby culture, what we, what we stand for and, and where we get to. So, um, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Have there been challenges or has, has that changed since you arrived and got your feet under the desk and you know, got onto the training paddock and started to see what you've actually got at your disposal over, over this season? Yeah, I think there's always challenges. You run into some new ones sometimes. Yeah, every day you get a couple of extras that you're like, oh, what's that? We'll fix that. But it's having a, uh, a mindset that we can, um, we can handle challenges. The boys are, we're doing a lot of work around our mindset and being a bit resilient and being able to handle change. Um, we have to be the best travelling team in, in Super Rugby because that's us and we'll do that. Um, we have to plan ahead um, to avoid anything that will impact our performance. But, um, you know, I think every team has its challenges and we might have a couple more um, than others in the early stages, but that'll change. How do you think you'll coach the Western Force? You speak to some people and they go, well, Simon Cron used to coach, you know, come from a Christchurch background, but uh, families coached the Hurricanes. Is he going to coach in a Hurricanes kind of way? Um, how do you see the Western Force's progression this year and, and the evolution of the side? Will it be a completely different one to the Tim Sampson one of, of past years? Um, I think there's certain things we do need to evolve, like any team. Like you know, It doesn't matter whether you come in um, uh, to a, a team from the year before, you've got to evolve. So we've got to look at ways in which we can do things better or be better, and, and it doesn't matter who's come before you, you're always you know, you're always doing that. The people at Toyota now will be doing the same, you know. Um, so for me, I think... You don't. You have a you have a style. You have a turn. You have a and I. You have a plan in your head how you want to play. You look at your squad. You evolve that plan slightly. The key thing for me is that we keep on path to where we want to get to, uh, and you will zigzag a little bit on the way to that path. The key mistake would be that you suddenly change tact and go a whole different direction, which is where 
if you are not firm on how you want to develop and play them, that's what will happen to a coach. You start jumping left and right, and that will confuse the team and cause some problems. So we've got on the same page about where we want to end up and how we want to get there, and, and then we will zigzag a little bit towards that. Uh, it's not really uh, another team approach. It's more of a fundamentals. What skill set do we want to be great at? Uh, what does our mindset need to be to be where we want to get to? And what structure do we need to put around the boys for that to be successful? So we work on all of those things all the time. Um, and, you know, you've got to look at a team you're playing and work out where their weaknesses are and then exploit that. And it's about having the things in the cupboard to be able to do that. So do they defend around uh, the midfield well or does the centre hold back? Does he read through? Okay, here's a move that will open them up. Let's run that, see if they do it. Um, and I think that's a week-to-week thing. It's a game-to-game thing. It's, it's what do we want to do in this game that's going to exploit Every team has a weakness. Let's find it. Let's exploit it. Uh, and then let's do our job on the other stuff. There's, there's quite a crop of youngsters coming through at the force as well. The academy has been up and running for a little while and there's some of those guys that are starting to come through as well. Are you impressed, satisfied about the emergence of Western Australian talent and has it surprised or disappointed you about what there is? I think it's a, it's a, it's a work in progress still for us. Um, yep, the academy's been up and running, but it takes a little bit of time. You know, you're looking at a three-year development program when you're looking at growing an academy, and I think they're doing a great job in that space, and there's some definite, and we've got a couple of boys over here now. Um, but to make them super rugby ready and then super rugby dominant, there's a bit of a process to that, and I think we can be better in the space in Clubland. I think we as the Western Force can be better in, in Clubland. Um, by that, what I mean is, I want to see players come out of the Western Force and go into Western Australian club rugby and dominate and be someone be on the sideline and go, that's a West, that's a super rugby player. I went to a couple of games. I've gone to a lot of club games and I looked at some and thought, oh, we're not really, we're not standing out here. We need to be better. So I think for us, we can we can we can grow the game. We can be better. Um, there's a lot of great. Supporters there, Australian, South African, Kiwi, English, Irish, it's a melting pot. Uh, and they love rugby. So now we've just got to give them something that they want to support. And that's our job. What about leadership? Speaking of the best, and the captain's not always the best player, but it needs to lead from the front. Um, you've held off announcing your captain for some time. Who's it going to be? So for us, it's been a, it's been, um, a process. We... The biggest mistake I've learned in the past is if you name a leadership group too early and you get one or two wrong, you can't reverse the truck. So we've been watching from day one who stands up, who talks, who listens, who listens to who, who gives precise messages, who's going to have a sharp edge, who's going to be the and, – and, and there's a number in our group that we went through, went through the lists, we talked about them, we discussed it as coaches. I was – I held – probably a little bit more inertia at the start, just holding off, holding off, holding off, longer than probably some of the other coaches. Um, they 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 were crystal clear on it earlier. And I kind of understood what they're saying, but I was just waiting. So who puts their hands up? Who's gonna who's gonna be the person? Now the captain is critical, but the people you put around them is as important for a captain to be successful. So a captain and the people who are going to lead around the team, attack, defense, all that stuff is critical. Now this podcast goes to uh, outwind. Next week. Okay, so after Monday? Yeah. You deal with me. This is oh, not absolutely. You're not mentioning it anywhere? No. Okay, so Michael Wells is going to be our captain. And 
the reason um, I held a little bit of an issue is I thought to myself, you know what, he's captain of the Rebels. Does he want it? Does he want? No, does he really need that um, pressure? Does he need the external uh, jobs that come with it? Because I can tell you right now, as a captain, sometimes that external stuff can impact your performance. So sometimes external, we, we give it to people thinking it's a privilege, when in actual fact it can be a problem. And uh, and the mistake is that they their, their performance then is impacted by how much stuff they've got to think about off the field. Yeah. And what I do not want to do is give the captain's role to somebody who then has so much on their plate that their own performance drops. Now, the positive thing about Walesy is he's had the experience before and learned from it. So he's learned from being a captain. He would have learned from being the Rebels captain. He talks, boys listen. He's got a sharp edge about him uh, in line with some of the coaching staff around messaging and where we want to get to. Um, and I think there's guys in the team around him who will make him even better as a leader. So it was a big process, and we only really got to the... I, I, at first, I thought he might not want to do it, so I quizzed him only two weeks ago because I left it that long. And, and he was a definitive yes, didn't pause. I was waiting for a pause. If he paused, you know, he didn't pause in the door at all. Yes, yeah, I can do it. And you've known him for a long time because, of course, he was at, at Norths. Can you remember that one of the first or second times that you came across him? Well, the thing is about that's probably where my inertia was. I was like, you know, I know Wells. I know what he'll, he'll deliver whether we make him captain or not. And, stuff. Um, and that's probably where my inertia was. And then the other coaches were like, Cron, it's pretty obvious. And I was like, okay. And then I chatted to a couple of senior players around, okay, who, what are you, who are you seeing without even telling them? And, and they were good at giving feedback around who they thought, and there was guys in the discussion there that we'd had thought about, and ultimately we ended up back at the same spot. So, um, yeah, I've known Wellesley for a long time, uh, and as a result of that, some of the things he will say will be in line with what we're trying to do here. Uh, but he can handle big moments on field, which is important. Um, he's got a calm head. He'll deliver the message that what the players need to do in the next minute, which is important as a captain. Um, and he'll, do by, he'll lead by doing like he's, he's not a shrinking violet on the field. Uh, so, and one of you know early experiences with Wells, he probably would have been me banging him, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, I like no doubts early in our career, he probably, um, every leader develops, right? Every leader gets better under leadership. So, um, early on, when I first came in, he was a guy that was always driven. And there would have been, there was other captains at the time that I, that I had, and he would have learned through watching how they acted and how they got uh, moulded to where we wanted to get to. Um, and then he's just naturally progressed into that. So now we've got to create a second tier of leadership here at the force, which I feel like we can do better than what we have in the past and have guys coming through that are all going to be leaders. Mm-hmm. Well, you must be excited about the year. Is there anything that you think will surprise people when they watch the Western Force this year? Look, um, we've come up with a, with a number of different areas that we feel like um, culturally we want to be seen as. Now, they're just everyone does that stuff and their words on a bit of paper. But if people start saying the things on that bit of paper about our team, then those words have come to life, and that's what we want to achieve. Um, and there's a number of things in that around how professional we are. There's a number of things about what we what we like when we show up, what we like on the field when we come off. And um, if people start saying those words about us, we've done our job. Mm. 
and and it's pretty pretty firm stuff. And there was lots of tight defeats in not just last year. It's been a bit of a hallmark for the Western Force about tight matches, not necessarily being able to convert those into victories. When you speak about mental resilience, as you spoke about earlier, having to do a lot of that, is that in part because you know that the force have been there, thereabouts, but haven't been able to take that big leap into turning matches into victories? Yeah, a lot of a lot of close games come down to mindset. And um, there's two types of pressure on the rugby field. One is scoreboard pressure, one is time pressure. So you've got to understand that both of those will come and it's how you then stay present and perform your role and, the, and nail your job within our team. And then the result or the outcome, and this is where people talk about process or I know it's catchphrase, but it is, that's where you get the result. If you do your job and you nail it in that last two minutes, that means we either maintain position and put pressure on them and as a result, get an opportunity, or we turn the ball over and are able to shut the game down. So it's about a mindset, and it's been able to give the player a focus point. This is what I want you to do in that last minute. This is how you do it. And we're, we've we've practised those. Um, are we there? I, I believe that our boys will be great in those situations, uh, and I'm looking forward to putting them into it. You hope you'd be able to have more Wallaby internationals from the force, only a couple in recent years. Do you think that perhaps not necessarily in 2023, there's never too many changes from the squad, but do you think that in the, in the years to come that you one of your priorities is making sure that Western Force players play for the Wallabies and that there's a, a representation, a strong representation of Western Australian rugby in the, in the Wallabies? That's our job. Like, ultimately, one of our biggest jobs is to help the national program develop players who will be Wallabies but also develop players who will be successful Wallabies from a leadership perspective, from the skill set in terms of development. So that you, by the time you become a Wallaby, you it's not it's not learning. Mm. It's not a place where you go to maybe get better. We, we want to have guys at the stage where uh, Eddie Jones can bring them in and they fit straight into what he's wanting to achieve, what he's wanting to do, and they perform at the highest level. So our job is to get as many of them as we can in there. Uh, who will be successful. Hmm. You've got a notepad with you. Do you ever let go of that notepad? Because I remember doing a, a podcast with you quite a few years ago and you still had that and you're scribbling down little notes along the way, but then you also record the, you know, the notepad coming out with Steve Hansen. Who who brought out the, the first notepad, you or Steve? Uh, I'd say he was before my time uh, in terms of uh, he, he is uh, – I've always had it uh, and that's just because – I don't want to miss a critical few. And sometimes you'll pick something and you will go, you know what, that that needs to be discussed. Um, and like when I'm we're talking with you, sometimes if we're asking a question, I'll just be one word that will trigger me into something that is important. Like on that bit of paper right there, skill set, mindset, structure, um, culture, what we're about is what I've written down. Um, and Steve is brilliant at putting, putting thoughts into pictures. So he's, he's better than I am, way better than I am around, you know, he'll draw a triangle and tell you where you're sitting in that triangle and where you need to go to. And um, I remember early on he sat down and said, right, you know, friends, family, work, you, what's your order? You know, what's first in the triangle? What's the tip of the triangle? What's the most important thing? What's, you know? And um, and mine was probably upside down, my triangle. So he said, without these ones, Without you looking after your own health, you're useful, useless to everyone else. 
And sometimes I can default to my own physical well-being last, uh, which has come out a couple of times, uh, you know. But that's and that's just learning, and that's why you know that All Black coaching team have been long-term success, not short-term. They are sixteen years number one in the world statistically phenomenal team coaching team and that's because they all function so well as a group and they didn't get it right necessarily at the start it was an evolving process we're often pretty quick to get rid of coaches if they don't always work the first time that's right you're 100 right the 2007 world cup as an example where they de- but if you look at the 2007 world cup and see who they developed into leaders and then where they took them post that like they developed those like richie mccaw best player in the world at the time, he got developed into the leader that he was and, and then Rito and then all those guys that were coming through. And I think that's a lot of the coaching staff and how they mentor and develop them. Then they take over. Then you start to hand the baton over and they start leading the way and everything underneath that is a cycle where the younger guys come into that environment and they learn what great looks like. They learn individual and team accountability. They learn what standards are. Mm. But I think at the start, it came from those coaches. Last one. Uh, they say the West Coast is the best coast. I know you appreciate the Northern Beaches waters, but how does the West Coast compare? Is it the best? Oh, it's a beautiful place. I mean, I, I've probably spent a lot of time between work and home. I've been up and down the coast um, and we had a camp down south at Busselton and we did some different stuff. So it's a beautiful place and I, I, I'm not fighting. I don't lose any time getting to work. Traffic was so it's a win. <laughs> it's been an hour and a half, an hour fifteen, as you know. Um, it's a beautiful place, great people. Um, it, it's it's definitely different. Like it's very different to the eastern seaboard, um, in, in in many great ways. So uh, I'm still learning. I'm still evolving. I'm still getting opportunities to meet people over there, and uh, I've met a lot of great people in my short time, and I look forward to meeting a lot more. Looking forward to seeing how your journey goes with the Western Force this year. Welcome back to Super Rugby and great to join you and thanks for, for coming on the Raw Rugby Podcast. Pleasure, Christy. Great. Uh, pleasure to be here and look forward to seeing you on the show.